until a young person actually gets exposed to a young person, a sober community of young people, they have no opportunity to even be attracted to it at all. They have no, it's just something that floats around in our imagination like, well, this, yeah, it, that'd be cool if it existed. It, it does exist. It's just the importance of, of getting to have that experience of seeing it in person. Wow, this is a, you know, this really happens. There's really a community that's, that, that I didn't even know about that exists. And a lot of times parents don't know about it either. Welcome to Hope Stream, a podcast for moms and dads who have kids with substance use disorder or who are in treatment or early recovery. I'm Brenda Zane, fellow mom to a child who battled an addiction to drugs and who almost died from multiple fentanyl overdoses. So I see you and I feel your pain, and I created this space for people just like us. Hope Stream is a space where we focus on you, your health, sanity, and well-being, And I also bring expert resources to help you navigate this scary and confusing world of teen and young adult substance use. This is where you'll find your tribe, and I'm really glad to have you with me. So let's get into today's episode. But first, this episode is supported by The Stream. You might be listening to this podcast and wondering who else out there is dealing with the kinds of issues you are. Well, there are thousands of moms just like you who are struggling to help their kids and who want to have a more positive, personal, and supportive place to connect with other moms who get it. The Stream is an online pay-what-you-can membership where moms who have kids struggling with substance use focus on their own health, wellness, and sanity with no judgment and no distraction because it's not on Facebook. We have weekly events, a book club, yoga classes, workshops, and great conversations. Being a member of the stream gives you an even deeper connection beyond the podcast, where you get to interact with amazing moms and me every day. So if you'd like to hang out with us after the episodes, you can learn more and join us at brendazane.com forward slash the stream. The first two weeks are always free. Then you pay whatever you can. I would truly love to see you there. Now for today's episode. Welcome, friends. Today, you are going to hear about what is going on in the world of recovery and sober high schools. I didn't even know that this was a thing. And they're awesome. But kind of as a bonus, you're also going to get to hear an incredible recovery story, which I believe offers so many golden nuggets for parents. My guest today definitely knows firsthand the lifestyle and challenges that come with teen substance use and addiction. He fought his own battle with substances starting in high school and struggled in addiction for over 10 years. He now has a master's in social work from the University of Washington and has worked in the recovery high school space for the past six years, helping kids who are working to get and stay sober in high school And he gives them a safe and really cool place to do it. Our conversation was deep and enlightening. First, you're going to hear about recovery high schools, what they are, how parents and students find them. And then you'll hear a story that you might be able to relate to a good athletic kid who starts smoking weed and partying in high school and finds himself addicted and in trouble with the legal system 
into his mid-20s before finding recovery after a near-death car accident. I so appreciate my guest's openness, his vulnerability, and I want to let you listen in now to this amazing conversation with Seth Welch of Seattle's Interagency Recovery High School. Welcome, Seth, to Hope Stream. I'm super excited that you're here today, um, late in the year, and I know you're on school break, so thank you for taking the time to do this and join me today so we can really bring some awareness um, for parents about recovery high schools. So thank you for being here. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Brenda, for having me. Yeah. I like to start my podcast out before all this stuff that I prepped you for with a just a fun question to let people get to know you a little bit better. And that is, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Ooh, good question. I would say definitely um, not the unique, wanted to be a professional athlete, thought that was pretty realistic. Um, right. What sport? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up in the era of um, the great likes of, you know, Bo Jackson and who played mm. professional athlete, multiple sports, football and baseball. So I probably I'd say baseball and then it and then it grew to uh, professional soccer would have been. The, oh, interesting. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And so how, how far did you take that? Did you play into college or what was your, what was your career like? Well, my career was uh, short lived. It was, <laughs> I, I did play, I did play quite a bit, you know, in the earlier years of certainly all through childhood and then uh, adolescence into um, middle of high school. But that was when you know, and my, my life took a turn into um, some challenges with drugs and alcohol. And then uh, that that turned out that when I was doing that, there were other kids were continuing to excel. And that sort of became, and that was something I had to come to terms with later in my own sobriety was like, yeah, that's some things you don't get the opportunity again, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I want to get into that personal story and hear how that led you to where you are today. But let's start with this thing called recovery high schools. I'm guessing that we have parents out there who have never heard of a recovery or sober high school, which is a shame because they can literally be life-saving for kids. And I know you are hugely passionate about them. So maybe you can start off by telling us why this is such an important piece of recovery for young people and sort of what you most want parents to hear. I just think one of the most the most important message is that really that anybody that hears this, the advocacy um, piece of getting a abstinence based recovery school in every in every at least at least starting with at least one just one in in every school district is not just it's not just the um, importance of it because it's progressive and it's it's awesome for the kids that go to it. It's like it's really an injustice not to offer it because there's really that's really the I think what I want people to sort of think about is like what if your kid what if there is nothing like this? What if there's just no option for a kid for kids who really want to have a realistic chance to be sober? 
you know, and find that place among other truly sober teenagers. Like, I just think when you think of it through that lens of like, okay, well, it only affects so many kids, right? The school population of our school is like 30 kids, right? And, and it might get up to 50 and hopefully then we would start another school. And that seems like, and in, in, in from a public school funding standpoint, it seems like, well, 30 kids, I mean, how much, how much difference are we really talking about? We've got serious issues and all kinds of whatever. And it's like, well, what if, what if that doesn't exist? What if there's just no option for kids to get sober? And, and that's kind of what we found is that there's just very, very little realistic options in terms of schooling that is available. It's kind of like, you know, they offer special education. Like if, you're, if your child has autism or whatever, you know, ADHD, there's, there's maybe not a special school, but there's at least a program or something that is directly engineered for them. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Wow. Well, so we'll talk about all of this, but you spent most of high school and then about the first half of your 20s in active addiction. Um, You did go to wilderness therapy, went to treatment. You were getting into trouble legally and, you know, all the things that parents fear the most. But um, in spite of all of that, you did end up going to college. You got your bachelor's and your master's degree, which, by the way, is amazing. Um, how did that come to be? It made sense. You know, I started like I got back enrolled at Seattle Central and I and I went back, started. I got a certification to become a drug and alcohol counselor there. They created a bachelor's program at Seattle Central, which was phenomenal. That was a behavioral science degree. So I'm, and I remember having a teacher say to me, so where are you going to graduate school? And I'm like, man, like, hold on here. Like, you don't realize what I've been through. Um, it's, I, I shouldn't even be here. And he's like, well, evidently you should, right? Evidently you are. And what you, and what you might want to introduce this idea to me, he said, what you might want to do is, is stop thinking about, you know, each, each degree as, as, it's not to say it's not a milestone. He wasn't saying, it's not to say not to be proud of yourself but you might want to stop thinking of it like that's where it stops. And rather it's just this continuation of this journey. And that conversation was like, okay, why not me? You know, maybe I could go to graduate school. And so I went to, I applied to university of Washington and I actually, in my admissions essay shared a lot about my experience in recovery at at that point as well. You know, I had been sober probably about 10 years, nine or 10 years by the time I started graduate school at University of Washington. And in the midst of all that, I worked for WAPI Community Services. They were the first ones to hire me, which actually they hired me with an ankle monitor on. So I appreciate their progressive (laughs) acceptance. Um, That is so awesome. And then I got recruited, you know, into this other, this idea that some people from the county, from the King County Behavioral Health Division looked at these models of what were called recovery schools. They were talking about recovery high schools, which there are a number of throughout the country. I mean, there's, there's probably about 40 right now, maybe I think there's 42. So they told me about this idea and I was like, recovery high school, huh? I'm like, yeah, that sounds like, that sounds fairly far-fetched, but you let me know when, when that comes around and, and I'll, uh, I'll take a look. <laughs> and, uh, and, and sure enough, you know, just like you, you, you never know, like, you know, two years later, um, after hearing this, they said, we're starting up a school and, and you're the guy. And so we started this they, a partnership between interagency, 
alternative schools and um, King County took looked at some of these models that were happening throughout the country within the Association of Recovery Schools, the Archway Academy in, in Houston and Pease Academy in, in Minneapolis and, and, and various schools, Ostagai in Boston. And they started, ta- they started looking at these models and saying, okay, what are we, what would this look like to do in Seattle? So we had a classroom in a, in a larger school that was, that had two teachers and two kids. And I think maybe one of them was sober. That was the beginning. <laughs> that was the beginning. <laughs> that was how it started. In like 2015, I think beginning of 20, maybe end of 2014, early 2015. And then really fortunately, um, they, you know, the principals, you know, these amazing advocates and, and uh, folks from the county had, had already collaborated. And that, that wasn't the end game vision, wasn't just to have this classroom. It, they had secured their own site, their own independent physical campus, which at that point, the only thing with, that was available was, was this, was the old gymnasium for Queen Anne High School. That gymnasium is a detached building that the high school has since been turned into condos. So, but, but the gymnasium facility is right, right next to it has been, had been completely renovated to, to accommodate four classrooms and a a small, serves a small high school campus. So we, we moved up there and, uh, and, and so from 2015 to 2017, we, it was all about building this actual sober high school, working, working alongside, you know, hearing about these other schools and what they had done. And uh, we, we started growing this school. I just think it's, it's so interesting how it kind of comes full circle to where you are coming back from treatment and going back into the same high school and all of the challenges that that presented. And that this is, I see it as, as such a crucial intervention point that I think a lot of kids could succeed once they have, and, and I'd be curious to know sort of what the makeup of, of the kids or students are that are in your program, if they've been to treatment or not. But I think that we could change the trajectory of a lot of kids' lives if we did have somewhere like this for them to go after they've been to treatment so they're not around that same peer group. So I just think it's fascinating that it's kind of come full circle for you, but then also just knowing that people are listening from all over the country. You said there's like 40 different schools around the country that are like this? Yeah, there are. So uh, yeah, I think right around 42 or 43 currently there there probably are more than that but when i say that number that are recognized there's there's the association of recovery schools which is the national organization that that deals with a a good amount of of oversight of you know anything in the realm of like we try to have you know some degree of of consistency and 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 and, uh looking at various evidence-based practices amongst really any program that we're you know, trying to implement and the association of recovery schools, which you can, you know, people freely check that out. They, as far as schools that are in existence that they, they are aware of, right. There's probably smaller programs that, that, that we don't even know about. Right. But there's about, you know, around 50 or a little less. And so what we did was, you know, working and looking at some of the other models, we tried to, we said, well, what, what is that going to look like here? Right. So we had, um, we had interagency, which provides all of the infrastructure for the, a very small campus, right? You know, we have about 
right now we have about 30 students and the capacity for, you know, at least for in-person here, we're of course in a different time where everything's online, but the capacity at at our campus for in-person is probably maybe more like 50 or 60 at the most, just because of the size of the, of the school. You know, we have, it, it runs very similar to, to any fairly small alternative school where, you know, they, we, we have, we've got five staff, we've got a math teacher, we've got an English teacher, we've got um, an online teacher who, you know, helps kids navigate a, a whole bunch of different online schooling options. So they're not, it's not just like turn them loose and do all your own online work, but there's a framework for, you know, what, what we don't, we aren't able to provide in terms of, you know, big laboratory facility and, and certain classes um, just because the student to staff ratio. And then myself, the drug and alcohol counselor, recovery counselor, people were to ask like, well, what's different about this school? So the first thing that's different is that every student coming in like this, this is an abstinence-based program. So it's, it's really sober and it's not just like sober from nine to 9am to 3pm. It's sober on the evenings and it's sober on the weekends. And we, we have various forms of like, you know, accountability around that. Most of which comes from other students, right? There's been a a culture that's created where, you know, if the cool kids, right. Just like a, like a flashback of looking at the high school experience is like the cool kids here are sober. The cool kids tend to have the most time sober. And, and, and a lot of times they're, it's not just, time but their lives have transformed and their ability to function in daily life and uh so that's what's sort of the driving force behind what i would say is the most significant piece of the recovery school or any recovery school is is the culture there that is largely you know is influenced by certainly staff members but it's really the majority of which is on the uh, on the students themselves that's so awesome I love that. That's, that's, it's kind of like what you were saying when you were in school is, you know, you, you start smoking and doing these things to fit in and, and be cool. And so if fitting in and being cool means that you're not using, um, especially for a kid who's really trying, you know, so have the, have the students there primarily, have they been to treatment programs or are they, are some of them just saying, man, I just want out of this other environment. Like what does the makeup look like? Yeah. So the, the composition of the student body is I would say half have been to treatment, probably more, maybe, maybe two thirds, uh, some, certainly some form of treatment, whether it be residential wilderness or outpatient. But then certainly we have, you know, we have a number of kids that also have not been to, to treatment as well. And they came through, you know, I mean, probably, uh, the majority of the students that have come in without a referral from treatment or sometimes a referral from another school or a counselor, probably a number of those kids actually came from referrals from their friends that attend the school. And so, yeah, that's been the most, probably the most interesting and, and as, um, as significant as any referral source is, is these young people transforming their own lives and, and seeing the, the school's involvement in that and then referring some of their friends that they not just that are just doing a bunch of drugs, but that are like, they have had experiences, challenges with sobriety and are thinking about making a change. And this is a more 
they, they're seeing this as a very realistic uh, opportunity for them to be amongst a peer group and a, and a community that not only helps with academics, but is, is just as serious about sobriety as they are helping with school and credit retrieval. I just know that the the challenge of like scraping up all of the random credits that are scattered around on the floor from all of the different programs and different attempts and um, that can be just a barrier in itself because it's so confusing and overwhelming. So finding that community and finding somebody who can help you navigate that is is really great. And then for parents is you know I think as they're looking at options and especially ones who have kids coming out of wilderness. Um, I know a lot of times the recommendation is that they go to a residential facility, but the cost is just incredibly prohibitive. So how how do kids come to you? Like, do their parents usually contact you or is it through a counselor or a drug court or what's the, what's the path? I'm just wondering how parents find, like, a, how do they find a Seth in their city? Yeah. So the referrals that we receive are, I mean, they, they just, I, I can't even say one source more than, than any other because it's, it's very equal, very distribution. It's, it's definitely a number of people. I would say, I mean, in a perfect world, if everybody could go to treatment, inpatient treatment, and then come directly to a recovery school or a teenager, right, that at least this experience challenges that would see them go to treatment in the first place. That's perfect. But since that's not quite reality, we we have a number of different avenues for which kids arrive, whether it's, you know, certainly sometimes there are counselors that have heard about our program. There are parents. There's certainly people in the recovery community now have have seen more of a presence of younger people, right? We just like expanded the range of, of age that you might find in in various um, sober support groups. So they they have a there's a bit more of a presence. So now people ask them, "How'd you get here? Well, you've been sober. You're 16, and you've got two years sober, or three months, or however much. Right? We've got, you know, currently in our school, we've got probably you know we have a, a range of people with a month sober, clear clear out to nearly three years next month. So quite a range. And I would say it's the same way for the referrals. We get a lot of different pathways and we do, we try to do a, you know, a decent amount of outreach while still being respectful to that gets tricky, right? Like that's one of the dilemmas is like, how do you do, how do you convey this message about this is the most profound thing that I have in terms of, you know, a, a, a structured, sober young person, community that is productive in the essence, you know, in, in the sense of it's a high school, but also is is equally, if not more, supportive for young, you know, teenagers actually maintaining, having a realistic opportunity to maintain sobriety because they're amongst peers that are doing that. It's the most significant thing that I've ever seen in terms of that, you know, as far as that sort of structure. But, you know, in terms of I can't even tell you how much outreach we've actually done to just raise awareness that that this exists as a resource for families and and communities and and one of the things that gets in the way is that like the most the the best way really to tell 
to talk about the significance is, is to hear it from kids themselves. But, you know, it's also teenagers, right? And it's also teenagers talking about challenges that they've had that you're not, you, you wonder about, well, will they want to tell this story 10 years down the road, you know, or whatever, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that can definitely be a hard ask of young people. And uh, speaking of challenging times, when you just take us back, we'll spend a little bit of time going through some of the things that you've mentioned and that I've mentioned and share some of your experiences that led you here to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So um, I born and raised in Seattle, uh, Washington, went to went to public schools all, all throughout the area when I, you know, I was, I was a pretty, pretty decent student for whatever <laughs> subjective determination that is, is I was pretty in line with, you know, going to school and seeing the importance of that and, and came from, um, you know, a, a, pr- a pretty, pretty interesting upbringing where my, my mother and father had, had split up when I was very like a baby. And, uh, my dad, my, my father, my biological father actually is, um, gay. And so that sort of changed the course of childhood a bit. And so I, fortunately for me, by the time I was four or five years old, both my mother and father had found wonderful men. Wow. (laughs) So I ended up with three fathers, uh, you know, and nobody planned that. I don't think exactly, but it turned out to be a really, a really sort of unique upbringing. And, and I had, uh, plenty of wonderful things happen in, in that, in that time with those families shared time between both households. And then, um, you know, fast forward to high school. And this is just one of the most key things. I think that it, it's pre- certainly in retrospect, I, I walked out of a, a fairly small, you know, middle school situation into, into Nathan Hill high school, which was really, really a fine school. Um, I just had no idea what I was getting into. And all of a sudden, you know, there's, 1500 kids and it's very just not even realistic that you know the staff is going to have very you know be very equipped to you know do a whole lot of personalized you're not in class and so therefore we are going to give a personalized call to your family you know so I just didn't know that skipping was an option and as soon as I found that out all of a sudden it became really attractive to you know, hang out with what I thought was, was kids that were cool and and they were skipping class and they were smoking weed. And, um, it kind of fell apart really, really quickly. And, and, you know, by this time, certainly this time, my freshman year headed into winter break, freshman year, everything had fallen apart and and it was everything. So that's pretty fast. That's pretty fast. If you were, if you were doing okay in middle school and then that that was a pretty quick tumble. What, what was your, all, what were all three of your dads and your mom kind of going through at that point? Did they notice what was happening? You know, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think they noticed changes, but here that, you know, here is anybody who's a, you know, parents of a high schooler and they're just kind of thinking, well, they're getting their bearings. They're trying to figure out what's, what's really that realistic, you know, that they're not clear. Well, one thing they were not clear on at all is that uh, how much school I was skipping and, um, that took a while, you know, it took a lot longer, maybe I guess than it should, or would have preferred to, they would have preferred to, know. um, but I, you get pretty, you get pretty clever and crafty as a, as a kid that's trying to undermine the system, you know, you're just like, okay, I know what time to be home so I can get the, 
the voice message about covering my tracks and and it just it, i got pretty sneaky you know and that just made it really difficult for them to really get a very clear pulse of like just how far the the, the when they realized i was off track was probably by the end of freshman year maybe even early sophomore year where it's like oh no your 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 child is truant your child you're, you're facing court because he's missed so much school stuff and there was only one reason for that which was pretty much daily marijuana use and, and everything that accompanies that right people are thinking well weed's not the end of the no but just like when you're smoking weed what are you doing instead you're not just doing <laughs> real wholesome behaviors exactly when you know so there's other things that accompany sort of at least for us that that sort of culture yeah and so for you it sounds like because this is such a crucial point that parents have so many questions about is is my child trying to like numb out some trauma or are they, you know, like why did they start doing this? And it sounds like for you, it was kind of like, I just want to fit in. I want to hang out. This is easier than maybe going to class. I mean, was there, do you feel like there was something deeper or was it just like, Hey, this is kind of the cool thing to do. You know, that's a really good question. I mean, there, I, I had faced some, some pretty challenging, um, early childhood experiences. And so that, that there was some, for sure, for sure, there was some, mm-hmm. some trauma there. So definitely feel for, for many of us um, facing, you know, even that or stuff much more challenging that I've come across. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, I, you know, to be fair, I just, you know, it's kind of a biased, I guess, opinion, I, I supposedly, but I, I sort of think that I don't really honestly know how much of a role that even played. I mean, the, whatever we faced in the past, you know, certainly that made it a little bit more uncomfortable for me in my own skin, you know? So it was, I kind of had this experience mm-hmm. of like, probably the best way that I could explain that is that once I found a mind altering substance, in this case, marijuana, or not that, that long later, you know, alcohol, that just made that all, all that much more appealing to be like, oh, wait, wait. You mean I can have this experience where I feel pretty much no inhibitions, no social anxiety. That's very attractive. It's like, oh, you immediately. And this is what this is the piece that I think was sort of like pick your poison, so to speak. It's like uh, nature versus nurture. I don't know. Some combination of the the two that Mm -hmm. made that sort of feel like very early on. And this these are sort of signs, I think, is like oh, I don't want to just have this on the weekends. Like, and it's hard to get your, maybe your kid to be honest about this. And, and it's kind of a lot of introspective work, I suppose. But my thinking and, and many of our, and a number of my peers was like, oh, I kind of want to be like this, like all the time. Not, not super, not super loaded, not like just totally intox- inebriated, but just like, I can just be like, take the edge off a little bit. Like you look at it like happy hour. You're like, you know, if I could just sort of take the edge off, that would be great pretty much in all situations, school, home, that kind of stuff. And then, of course, happy hour, you know, extends into into long hours. That is really interesting. I think that that is a crucial point that parents get really um, curious about and really frustrated with is why, you know, why did this start? And then also... There is, like you said, and, you know, we're in Washington, so marijuana is legal for recreational and uh, medical use. But 
a lot of parents are at this juncture where they're saying, I don't know, is it the lesser of the evils? Is it like, well, he's just getting high on the weekends or a couple of times during the week? I don't know, is that really that bad? And I think what what I'm hearing you say is it can happen really, really fast that it that it moves from just on the weekends to during the week and then on to other substances. And we could probably do a whole nother podcast on whether it's a gateway drug or not. But what I'm hearing is it can happen pretty quickly. It's not like this is something that, um, you know, if they're smoking marijuana, that it could just be that for years and years, which I think is really important for parents to hear because it is so hard to know what to do. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think I think that's a very good point. I think that um, certainly for those of us, myself included, to where there were some adverse childhood experiences, for sure, which, you know, that applies to many kids. But, I, you know, I would say probably what, you know, without getting into super detail, it, it was it was fairly significant what I had faced as a, as a child. It, despite having a great upbringing, just had some stuff happen that was really, really unfortunate. That certainly... Did that make me more prone to have an addictive personality to want to get outside? Absolutely. However, this can it can really sort of happen to anybody. But really, I just think it was so much based on what I thought was cool. Honestly, like kids hate that. You know, that terminology just sounds so like cliche and like cool. I don't care about what cool is like. But actually, we all kind of care about what cool is. It, it just changes what what it, what we think is cool as we get older and stuff like that. Um, so I would definitely say that you know the, the things around you know that my 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 family tried to get me. They knew I love sports, right? And so they tried to have me plugged in even you know, pretty immediately upon um, getting into high school with that kind of structure, which I think is hugely important, whether it's sports or music or some various forms of art or just, you know, after school plans for those afternoons when you get out at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m., that's a lot of time afterwards. And if that's not accounted for, we will, some kids will be really proactive and like find things to do that are actually productive. And then there's a whole nother group of us that will fill that time with what we, what we think is appealing or cool and cross country which is what i got put into cross country running they just they weren't they they had nothing on some of the kids that were honestly you know maybe selling drugs or just um partying basically you know at all hours of the day that was just no yeah there was no competition there that is that is very true it's something that i talk about a lot is just keeping them active because that downtime is so dangerous <laughs> it's it is like what's what's going to feel cuz something's going to fill that time Exactly. No matter what, something's going to fill that time, positive or negative. So typically a kid is coming into high school. They, I feel like if you look close enough, um, they do have interests. We do have things that we, that we really liked. It's not like we have no passions and connecting with, you know, already before, during that summer, that transition of going into middle school into high school, which is super kind of anxiety ridden oftentimes anyways, connecting with some, with, with even just a cup, you know, a handful ideally, but even if it's just one or two older, like say, say middle age, middle sophomores, juniors, or seniors of, of people that your kid can look up to. Like, I will never forget. I, I had such a profound experience with a, with a guy that I ran cross country with uh, whose name was Lincoln. He was a senior and, and I was a freshman. It was such a profound experience, even though I went off track, that 
I wanted to name my kid that we just had after him. You know, it was just so, because I had always felt like, you know, even though I'm grateful for my life today, what if I had stayed that course? You know what I mean? You just wonder, right? Like even in, in, in the utmost gratitude, you just think, because it, because they were the kind of person that he was still cool to me, but he was balancing the demands of high school in terms of, you know, academics and, and family with at some degree of a social life. And I hadn't really seen many people balance that in a way that, that was kind of speaking my language. So there's somebody out there that is speaking your child's language. It's just, it's just a matter of like figuring out who those, if, if we don't kind of point them in the direction and expose them to people that can speak that language to them and get them connected, they're going to find the alternative and, and that might work out or it's just a huge gamble. Um, and so by what that culminated in was by the time, you know, two years into high school going into between sophomore and junior year, I had family do a intervention for me and basically surprised me with a, uh, a about a month long wilderness program, which kind of like, I, I don't really like to use the term tricked into going, but I was, it was kind of that, you know, because I just wasn't, they were just doing their best. They were by that point, they had had serious concerns and this is what the other thing that parents i think is important to know is that i mean realistically that's kind of scary things you know some parents are really close with their kids and probably have a have a better lens of what's actually going on but my parents by by the end of sophomore year were extremely worried and they didn't even know the half not even that but they you know even what they did know gave them plenty of concern just for you know, how late I was out at night and, and uh, very irresponsible behavior. And clearly by that point, I was looking at not only truancy, but I wasn't, I had very few credits and stuff. So they're already trying to come up with all these different ways that I'm going to, you know, regain credit retrieval programs and stuff like that. So I went to this treatment program in, in the wilderness in Oregon. And I was, you know, again, here's something that I'm, I'm pretty sure insurance did not Maybe insurance covered a portion of that, right? But but I don't think so. No, <laughs> it doesn't cover it. Oh, I can tell you, it doesn't cover it <laughs> from experience. No, it does not. <laughs> really, again, that and that's just one of the layers of um, you know the privilege that is even required to even participate in something which really was like this, which was really a fantastic program. Um, you know, you spend the first week pretty much in denial of why you're even there. And then by pretty rapidly, when you're, when you're out here and you're hearing the other stories of other young people, about 10 other kids in this, and, and you end up oftentimes being the average, right? Like just like any, many situations where it's like, yeah, some kids were there that I hadn't done probably nearly as much as I had. And then there was some that were quite a bit more serious that had already, you know, got involved in the criminal justice system and stuff like that. By the end of that month, I came out pretty about as transformed as you could at least appear to be like I was on board with sobriety I had I had done process groups I'd like come out to my family about you know this this ultimate disclosure like at the end of the you know the end of this little wilderness program you 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 come clean it's like you come in this like confession style way in front of these other kids and their families and tell them it's kind of like, well, what'd you learn? <laughs> and it's like, well, a whole lot, but let's start by just confessing all my secrets. And, 
And now there was great efficacy of that. Like it was this really sort of relieving thing. And I told them some really, you know, significant things that were hard for them to hear. There was a lot of tears. And this is the key about this was that again, right. Kind of going back to these themes of I'm all the way on board with sobriety as I think many of us were there. We're all returning to various areas throughout the Northwest. And I, I maintained sobriety for about six months after that. And, and, and that was a pretty, that was a pretty strong time in, in high school. But the, the, the key difference was that at no point in time, what, what, when I'm, when I, when a kid or when, when I am thinking I'm going to be sober, I get cognitively that yes, drugs are bad and they are, there's one common denominator um, that's been in this case, marijuana or alcohol that's been involved in the decline of my high school career. Yes, I'm on board with that. I get it. But the thing that I didn't get that was just completely over my head was you don't stand a chance at staying sober for any, for any real long period of time, if you have the exact same peer group. And that was another word to me. That was not, I might've nodded my head along when people said something like that, but I'm not leaving my friends. You know, that, that, that's just pretty inconceivable. And sure enough, they were supportive of me for a little while and are like, yeah, you know, the sober version of Seth, like, okay, that's cool. That's new. And then that newness, you know, and the appeal of that wears off about a hundred days in, if that, you know, it's like, okay, well, what else? What's next? You're just going to be the sober guy that sort of tries to speak the language of, of treatment and try to convince us that we also should do it, which is of course what I was doing. And, and really none of them did or, or hardly any of them. And, and, and by six months and a few days, I got bored of it and I'd never found a community, right? I was, I just was never exposed to a sober community of other young people. I thought that the only kids that really didn't do any sort of drugs whatsoever were, you know, I had a stigmatized view of what that was, which was kind of, for lack of a, a better term, kind of like squarish. You know, you hear these terms, or you know, very stigmatized. That's obviously totally wrong. But just kids that had never uh, done drugs at all would be the only ones that were not doing them now, and that that wasn't true. But I didn't get any exposure to to that community. So, so. you had just to clarify. So you came out of wilderness and you went back to your same high school. I did. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that is so common. Parents are left with very few options, either send them to a $10,000 a month residential treatment program, you know, somewhere outside of their state or at least out of their city, you know, which is private and not covered by insurance. Or you could move to a new public school district, which norm, for what I've found is kids are going to find the, the drug kids anywhere. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Or you put them right back in the same school. Yeah. So it's just the the options are really excruciatingly frustrating as a parent, having been through it for years and years. It was like, well, what am I supposed to do with this kid? There's no foster system for him. I can't ship him off to somewhere else. Right. That was absolutely, yeah. That's, I mean, that's just such an important point that, I mean, pretty much most research that is available um, is going to indicate that, you know, a young person coming out of treatment in this case, it was privileged enough to get to even go to it in the first place, whether it be a residential or a wilderness program or, or even, even outpatient setting, right. That a lot of kids end up in because 
we minimize our use or, you know, uh, we don't, we don't surprise, surprise, we don't tell the truth about how much drugs we're actually doing. And, and then we end up with a lesser level of care than probably is adequate. But either way, going back to that exact same environment, or like you said, something similar to it, man, that's a, that's a tough one. It's, there's pretty much nothing. That's just, it's an uphill battle right from the very beginning. So that one, and, and to be fair, even my parents, even they, they really did try to get quite creative. I, I, I went back to the same school, but then they realized they quickly put together like this, this doesn't seem very sustainable. So they tried to find another, a very small, almost like one-on-one tutoring program where I could get caught up on some credits. And that was cool. I had great relationship with some of the tutors and whatnot, but that wasn't a community, you know, that was just like something to check off a box. And then they tried to put me in, uh, into running start and that actually it worked out for a few classes but but quickly as soon as i started you know smoking again at all after a little bit after six months all that fell apart and i dropped i don't i think i dropped about 10 classes over the next couple years as i tried to manage you know going from running start doing a couple classes at the high school and then trying to do sports it just was not structured enough and i and i quickly sort of fell through the cracks, I guess. There's so many pieces of that that I think are important um, just to highlight the, obviously the impact of going back to the same peer group because we do, I think as parents forget how important friends and peers are. <laughs> it's not it's not like it is when you're an adult and you're, you know, you're a little bit more, um, you have more context for life when, when those are your people, those are your people. And so going back to them and trying to fit in or like, even like you did to try and maybe help them a little bit is, is going to be a big, huge uphill battle that right being fresh out of treatment probably isn't the time to try and fight a really big battle because I hear that from so many parents is, but he's so great and we want him to come home because we miss him and, you know, there's there's a lot of like, you just want your family to look like it's supposed to look again. Yeah. And there's so much stigma in people knowing that your kid went to treatment. So then when there's an option to have them come back and and you can kind of look like and even for a while feel like that, that everything's fine again. It's very, very tempting to do that and to not listen to. I think it's even the data I've I've read that it's like 80% of kids who come back from treatment into the same environment end up relapsing in some form or fashion. Um, so I think that's super important. And then also this, what you mentioned, um, and I just want to highlight it for parents, and I try to do this all the time, is if your kid is telling you they're doing X, Y, and Z, they're probably doing more. Um, kids usually highly underreport what they're using because they don't want to freak you out. They don't want to scare you. They don't want to make you more worried. And and there's some embarrassment, I think, about it too. So yes, absolutely. If you're hearing, oh, mom, I'm just smoking some pot on the weekends. You may want to just dig into that a little bit. And seen them and seen them a thousand times at this point. Anyway, just wanted to highlight those two things because that you said them and and you've lived them, and I think it's really important for parents to hear that. So you're back to your old shenanigans then. Yeah. And then, uh, so yeah, come back. And, and that's a, that is a key thing is that sometimes you'll hear this, well, you know, treatment didn't work or wilderness or whatever. And I, that is not, I do not believe that. I, I, I know that, you know, it's obviously like every program that's pretty much ever been created, particularly for young people, 
sure it's largely dependent on their it's like it's it's the it's the essence of counseling the relationship right the rapport that's built with the staff members at any program is is largely probably going to determine you know maybe how well that program goes for for a kid or whatever and that comes from both sides it's not just all on the staff at all but um i had a fantastic experience in that even though i didn't stay sober that time you know for forever i i was able to draw back on those experiences many times i think i think during that experience and my first experience in treatment for sure was the the first time i had a counselor we're walking on some trails and stuff like that and he told me he was in recovery and and he had a he had a story that i couldn't argue was like more it was it was more severe that or at least i thought that you know than than i was looking at especially because he had just done some drugs that I had I hadn't done actually have still never done and and I connected with him and it was the first time that I ever thought maybe maybe this is what I'm supposed to do at 16 years old I thought maybe I could be a count you know maybe that's what I'm supposed to do but I also had this lurking truth in the back of my mind that was like my conscience saying well yeah yeah that's very very true you definitely could do that and in order to do it you're going to have to be sober like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so even, even then when I met my best, I'm like fresh out of treatment. I'm rearing to go. I like kind of had this like, well, yeah, but like if that's a job, you know, a lot rides on that. I can't be, I can't be shaky in my sobriety at all. If I'm going to be a drug and alcohol counselor, even then I was thinking like that. And that was true. You know, it was like that, that's not something that's not a good place to be, you know, on shaky ground with your own sobriety when you're trying to help other people with, theirs I guess right so right but how amazing that at 16 you even had that thought even if it was just once for 15 seconds that's I think a true testament to how treatment programs can work because it is true that a lot of kids go to wilderness mine included and you know then went on for two three more years after that in complete chaos and deep drug use but those experiences still played a huge role in his eventual recovery. And so I think that is also kind of a golden nugget for parents to realize is if your kid has just come out of treatment and is now back into some issues, drug use or whatever, that doesn't mean that you just wasted all that money or that they just wasted all of that time. That's still really, really, really valuable time that they spent, you know, in being being clear and, and sober, getting that input from from the counselors and the staff and they're going to use that later. It's kind of like tucked in the, in their back pocket and it's going to come out at some point. That's absolutely right. I mean, that's, and that's this, you know, that catchphrase of like, we're planting seeds. And sometimes that can sound like a cliche. That's like, well, this is what we hang our hats on. If the, if the abstinence, you know, rates aren't what we want them to be, but it's like, there's really a, there's really a truth to that. Yes. So, well, then how in the world, I'm so curious to hear how you go from from that to being somebody who that little voice in your brain at 16 um, turned into to doing what you're doing now. Yeah. So, and and I'll just give the sort of the, the more rapid version, which I think is, you know, I'm certainly not unique in this where I, um, I ended up, you know, stayed sober for six months. And, and by the time I was 17 now, I completely fell off, you know, the the sobriety train again, and I started developing this tolerance. So it takes me more to get high. So I'm seeking out this 
the high, this sort of high that I used to previously get, you know, by the time of, by the time I was 19, I found myself, um, in a similar situation where I was running through an intervention. Um, actually this is kind of a crazy connection, but, um, the person who really helped spearhead the intervention for me, uh, was one of my childhood best friends. His name is Ben Haggerty, the artist who's formerly, you know, yes. So that's, Macklemore, of course, and we had known each other since been close friends since we were very young, and and he was one of the people who um, had also been like trying to get even before any of us really for anybody in our community that I recall um, just about had been dabbling in this sobriety thing since we were basically sophomores in high school because he had some similar outcomes in high school where he just fell way off the tracks, you know, and, and if he couldn't. If he wasn't sober, he was noticing this connection. He was just a little ahead of ahead of his time in, in a lot of ways, evidently, right? But uh, he he helped stage an intervention for me again. I think he had a hand in the other one as well. But certainly at 19, you know, came to my family and was like, dude, you know, he, we're really worried about his safety. He was he he had missed the idea of like it was more. He had already at 19 years old, he had this very realistic. Uh, assessment of life, which was like, I'm going to lose my friend. He's going to die. He's going to die either in an overdose or he's going to die driving a car. And it, and it's and I have to have the courage to come to his family and tell them this is the severity of it, and I'm willing to receive the consequences of my of one of my best friends potentially hating me for a period of time. That was the catalyst for me. Uh, then again, going back into treatment, and I was the youngest person in the adult facility. And they're giving me these tools, but but man, I, I latched on to, to a couple people. I remember one guy saying to me, he ended up being my closest friend in treatment. He was a few years older than me. And he was like, what are you in? What are you in treatment for? And I'm like, well, I mean, what do you think? I mean, same as all of us, right? Drugs and alcohol. And he's like, no, but I mean, what legal problems? And I was like, well, I mean, I don't have any, I'm only 19. I don't, I don't really have any legal problems. And he was like, oh, you are good to go. And I internalize that that verbiage just was like yes i am oh my gosh i am just i'm sitting pretty you know and this is fine it's all good i'm gonna be great and i still was trying to absorb what i could from treatment but ultimately that you know and just my own readiness right like was was just sort of altered that was like i'm looking for a way to put myself in like, this isn't that bad. See, it's really not that serious. Like I'm going to try this sober thing, but if it doesn't work out, right. It's not, I'm not like these, I don't have legal problems. Um, and so I spent from 19 to 25 racking up legal problems, doing exactly what I had heard was like the next, the next level of a rock bottom or whatever people want to call that. It all fell apart. And on um, February 12th, 2009, I'm 25, 25 years old. And um, I ended up in a very significant situation where I was speeding in and out of a, in and out of like what we call a brownout. So I'm kind of in and out of conscious essentially and crashed into the back of a, a semi truck and did a, did a 360 on I-90 tried to flee the scene and that's a whole nother set of charges which i was one bit announced to me and right there everything changed right there was like this is 
you know, I had already had some experience with driving under the influence and, and even and getting caught for it. And this was a game changer, just like overnight. I'm going to be in and out of jail for the next couple of years. That was the beginning of, you know, uh, real, what I would kind of consider real sobriety at that point was like, I became willing, oh my gosh, this is way more serious than I had ever imagined. And now I don't know what else to do. And, you know, that they, there's, there's a reference to this, this idea of a jumping off place where you, you can no longer envision your life doing what you're doing because clearly this is where you end up, but you, how can you even begin to wrap your mind around, um, sobriety, a lifestyle of sobriety, which I also have never known. That's even more imaginative. That just seems very, very far-fetched. Right. That had to have seemed a little bit like a fantasy world at that point, because you had been in it for so long. And how do you imagine a life without that now? Absolutely. And now my real belief, my real concern is that even if I do get sober, I'm not going to amount to anything anyways, because now what? I've got a criminal record or I've got no skills. I've got no, no degree, nothing, you know, so it just seems extremely daunting. Oh, can I ask what, um, what was going on with your parents during this time? Because this is mostly parents listening um, to the podcast and it's so painful to watch your child go through this. And I'm just curious as to what was going on. Were your parents kind of constantly at you? Were they letting you do your thing? Because there's there's such a fine balance as a parent to not enable your kid and help them, you know, and try to save them from all the consequences of their actions. Um, and then at the other extreme, just sort of letting them go and saying good luck with that kind of what what was going on with your family yeah so family they i mean they they had tried in various ways <clears throat> to support me all throughout this progression right they i think that the the best way that i can sort of sum that up is that you know they clearly organized you know basically constructed that the two times that I went to treatment at 16 and 19 and they were largely behind that and largely behind certainly funding that and just everything right and the and the thing that i think is is hugely important is that in that if if somebody is trying to get sober if somebody is certainly if they're fresh out of treatment that is definitely a, a good time for well thought out support Right. And, and what I mean by that, I know that can be a sort of a challenging thing to what does that look like? Right. So anytime that somebody comes out of treatment, when I came out, there's a plan. Right. There's a there's a there's a discharge summary. There's a plan. And we, we will help you. You know, we're, we, we will be there for you, but we're not going to do it for you. Right. If you make this plan and you say it's largely going to have to do with structure, it's largely going to have to do with finding a new community, hopefully, um, of sober people, no matter what age you are. And, and so they, they really helped along those lines, but eventually what I started doing when, when I started to veer, you know, like oftentimes for me, it seemed to be around that six months, sometimes it's shorter, sometimes it's longer for people. And I start to veer off, you know, I don't really need to do this anymore. I don't need to do it the same way. I'm going to kind of go back as soon. It's almost like this, you know, I hate to have it be so cut and dry, but for me, I, I can't put enough emphasis on the moment that I 
not only it's not like being perfect, but as soon as I veer from finding a new community, finding a sober community back to old friends, okay, that's kind of, that's like a really serious shift. And I know we don't always know when that's happening um, because we're not honest about it. We're certainly with our families, but, but you can start putting together who, who you hang out with. Oh, really? Where did that plan come from? You know, we start veering back and sure enough, where does that lead to? I think that there was around enabling, if, if there's some, I've sometimes come back to one thing that I had gotten a second of several DUIs and the second one I ended up being, you know, would have probably been in jail in King County jail for the better part of a couple of weeks, maybe like two to three weeks before my court appearance. And this is now the second time, you know, it's like the insanity of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. I call my parents again, thinking I'm just think, think, thinking I'm quite the tough guy. And I call my parents crying day one in jail. And, and I'm talking about how serious and sad it is and how, how I'm never going to drink again. And they bail me out. And I think that's, that was an area where I think they also came back to and were like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. You know what I mean? And, that, and, and, and so I can't, you can't make the, I can't at least, right? I can't make the recommendation that parents let kids sit in jail. And so there's all kinds of controversy around that, right? But in my case, that was, I, it's just sometimes the reality of like, if I didn't get a natural consequence, which that was, I was just not going to take any learning from it. And the difference of this time, you know, and granted, I wasn't a teen by that, by this time that I got sober, but there's, I think there's still a lens that, that can appreciate. Well, how ironic it is that this last time uh, when I was, I had just turned 26, but this last time when I got sober, they didn't do a bunch of stuff for me, right? I got myself, I kind of found the resources to get myself in treatment. I paid what money I had left from my deployment to get into treatment. And then I went to jail <laughs> after being six months sober because the courts, you know, it happens like that. You don't go, you don't do all your stuff right away. You know, I think, I think the biggest thing that parents can do, one of the biggest things is, you know, apart from if, if treatment is a great option, that then certainly helping a kid get into it. But then afterward, exposure to young person sober communities, right? So because then because we're not, what we're not doing is saying, don't do drugs. Don't hang out with your old friends. That doesn't work. But what could work is here. We're, we're not going to make it. We're going to make it pretty hard for you and pretty uncomfortable to go back to, to your, your old peer group. But what we will, will make it much easier to do is get involved with some of these communities of sober young people. We'll start giving a little more lenience, right? When it starts to come to maybe, I don't know, maybe curfew or times to hang out. You start feeling a little bit sense of autonomy and you start seeing other sober young people that you're now attracted to. Like, oh, they're not that different from me. Like, this is this is kind of cool. Like this isn't, this isn't what I thought, you know, I'm laughing with some kids I'm making some connections. So that's where I think, you know, that exposure to those communities, because oftentimes a kid is not just going to find that on their own. Cause we have all these preconceived notions of what that looks like. That's really helpful because parents, I think do have a hard time figuring out like, what can I do? You know, this is, this is such a hard thing. So I like that concept of make it easier to hang out with the the kids who are also trying to do the same thing and be sober and make it a little bit more difficult if you want to go do something else. 
we're not going to help make that easy. Because a lot of times it it does feel black and white, like the enabling thing, well, we're not going to do this or we're not going to do that. So just this idea of we're just going to make it easier for you. We're we're not going to do it for you, but we will definitely encourage it and and make that easier. So I really love that. And I think you're right about um, jail. It it's so painful for parents to to go through that. And you know, unfortunately, I've been through it many times. And and my son has said that he had one of his biggest light bulb moments waking up in jail. You know, and that maybe for you, you know, your your experience with the accident and that was sort of like a light bulb moment for you. And, you know, I think it's important to know that light bulb moments can happen also in a jail cell. So not easy to do for sure to not bail your kid out, but um, also not necessarily the worst thing if you can't do that. So um, what do you, just final question, I we could probably talk for seven more hours, but what do you love most about what you do? Um, I have, well, before I, I will definitely answer that. I And before I do, I want to make sure to say, you know, honestly, it, it, it's totally fine to share my number. That's a lot of times the ways that um, young people or families or guardians or whoever get a hold of me and say, hey, what would it look like? to get a kid into this school. And then we talk about that process. And then, you know, what I love most about this, I think that the transformations that I've seen both amongst, you know, we've now had several hundred students uh, in the time that we've been in existence. And I've never seen this level of transformation for, for teenagers actually getting sober, actually maintaining what people would consider pretty long-term sobriety um, in, in any other setting. Uh, this is the most significant transformation that I've seen. Um, and it's not just for the kid, right? As we know that somebody, somebody gets sober and if they're a part of a community, which largely from what I, from my perspective is, is what it actually takes to get sober in some capacity, then they, it's not just them, it's their family's life. It's other, it's other people that they come into contact with like I like I've said, I, I would say we've we have received as many referrals as we have from any other place are, are from kids referring their friends, right? So now we're talking about a young person that has transformed their own life, probably was doing pretty reckless things before. And if anything, you know, we're taking taking away from they're causing harm, right? They're causing harm on a lot of levels. And now they are carrying this message and actually you know, doing all kinds of service in the community, helping expose other young people to this opportunity and, and the things that we do outside of school as well. It's just, you can't even, you can't even put a price. It's just invaluable. It's absolutely priceless. Um, so I love that. I love that the most. Um, getting to see, there's so many things to celebrate. I mean, each within the last, just during this fall, when we've been in a, in a pandemic, I've, we've watched five, six students celebrate either one or two years. That's just in the, in the fall. And now we've got, we, over half of our school has a year, a year sober, over, over a year sober. And, and it's not to say that the time, you know, that just speaks to the, to the seriousness of these kids about what they're doing. And they're seeing, they're seeing the results of it in the rest of their life. And certainly it's about quality more than it is quantity. And they're, they're appreciating, appreciating that. One thing that I have to mention that, 
you know, recently there's this, there's this thing called an alternative peer group. And I would invite people to, to research that. So it's often uh, the acronym is APG. An alternative peer group is something that supports people in the community. It supports young people outside of school hours, right? So they're going to have activities. It's like a boys and girls club for teenagers in, in recovery. And so they're doing all kinds of activities. They, there's going to be, you know, probably a, a therapist that comes in. There's, we, it's where you get a chance to have some of these young people that have now transformed their lives have a, have a year or two or three sober. And now they're coming back to function as, as a mentor. And so we, we just started Seattle's first APG just this, really this summer, this fall. Uh, it's called Bridges. And I'm on the advisory board for that. And we've got, you know, we've already got about 25 or 30 kids involved in that. It's just a great support for families. This is the, that's the ultimate. So there's, and there's a good amount of overlap, right? Between this and not just in Seattle, but between a recovery school and their local community partner of an alternative peer group, which is its own, it's its own separate organization. But these, there's a lot of overlap between the students or the participants, right? So that's another great thing that's that's now available as well. So important, so important. That after school, that after school time is super important. So, wow, this has been so incredibly amazing. Um, so much information. I think that parents really needed to hear from someone like you who has been through it and out the other side, because I think a lot of parents, and I, and I hear this from people who have gone through um, addiction and substance use too, is a lot of parents at least feel like, yeah, he did it, but my kid is different. My kid's this, my kid's that. And, and we always come up with the reason why our kid isn't going to be the one who changes. And so I think it's always great to hear from the mouth of somebody who has been there. And maybe you even felt the same way to say, well, you know, why, how am I going to change and what do I have to change for? So um, I just thank you for your honesty and, and openness to, to share that because it is so, so helpful for parents. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And the, and the thing that I would say about, you know, as, as, as recovery schools, they are gaining more as our collegiate recovery programs, by the way, these are like sprouting up all over the country where they've got sober dorms and they've got these programs that they're recognized, you know, people are actually acknowledging that the significance yeah. of use on college campuses and stuff like that. And that some people are able to navigate that. And then there's a whole bunch that just aren't at all able to, ne to negotiate that. And it gets in the way of them getting a degree yeah. and stuff. And, and so we have this amazing opportunity that I think um, just the, the final thing that I wanted to say, it, I think it's so significant that every single district have an option of a recovery school, a truly sober one, right? And it's, and when I say abstinence-based, I mean that like, that's, that's the goal, right? Like it's, it's, it's not at all saying that no kids ever relapse. Of course, that's ridiculous. That's totally not reality, right? right but it is right. saying that like, it is being really transparent about that's the goal. And, and these kids are demonstrating that that's not that's not a grandiose objective. You know, that is happening. These kids are actually accumulating uninterrupted sobriety for significant lengths of time, much more than a lot of adults that, that we know. Right. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I think it can be selling them a little bit short to say, well, you know, 
the ter- relapse is part of recovery and stuff. No, it's that's not really true. Relapse is a part of my journey, right? And some of right. our journeys, but that's not because that's saying that everybody will for sure relapse if it's part of recovery. No, that's not at all what's happening, right? Some mm-hmm. people are able to get involved in communities like this and, and programs and, and support groups and, and maintain sobriety for a long time or the rest of their lives. And even the ones that do, we've had students that have, have, have had several relapses. And in many cases, they, you know, they go back. So it's like, we look at what's missing. Okay. Maybe they need to, you know, we just had a couple of kids get out of residential programs. I just saw another one is going in today. You know, so we have these, you kind of create these collaborative efforts and partnerships with local treatment centers so that you're enhancing this continuum of care, this coordination of care, right? So, and many of those kids will come back to us when they, when they are ready or, and, mm-hmm. and obviously a, a young person, a teenager also is, is being freely afforded the autonomy to say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not ready for this level of commitment right now. And, and that's important too, right? Because it, this, it's not for everyone, um, but until, until a young person actually gets exposed to a young person, a sober community of young people, they have no opportunity to even be attracted to it at all. They have no, it's just something that floats around in our imagination like, well, this, yeah, it, that'd be cool if it existed. Right. It, it does exist. It's just the importance of, of getting to have that experience of seeing it in person wow, this is a, you know, this really happens. There's really a community that's, that, that I didn't even know about that exists. And a lot of times parents don't know about it either. Right. I think that's the key is that it it's really this hidden gem. And would, would it be like if a parent's listening and they know they don't have one of these schools in their district, is it something like, would you call the school district and just start that conversation? Or how do, how do parents sort of advocate for, the creation of a, a recovery school if there isn't one in there. Because if there's only 40 or so in the United States, that means there's kind of like not even one per state. Um, how do you how do you even start that? Yeah, that's just such a, that is the question of all questions. I mean, I, I think what, exactly <laughs> no. what you said is, you know, you start wherever you can. We've seen parents and okay. we've seen the PTA. I mean, anywhere, mm-hmm. wherever you yeah. can start to get that conversation going, that's the place to begin. Right. And then, and then you get, you start having that conversation, you start raising awareness and you start really, it's kind of like, you know, we talk about getting in recovery and and how far can you get without addressing that there's a, the existence of a problem that currently exists. And then you start moving toward the solution without, without identifying it uh, as we are doing in, in many other aspects of our society today is like, okay, let's acknowledge that this is a problem. Let's acknowledge that there are not very many realistic pathways for young people in particular to access sobriety and, and then maintain it. So let's talk about that. And, and what are we doing to, what's being done to address it? What are we offering to students that have these, we know that the, that the numbers are even much higher than are widely accepted as far as kids that are, you know, using abuse disorder. In schools and and the prevalence of it and as soon as that's raised you know raise it to to principals raise it to city council the more that it starts getting addressed and and discussed the more that each given 
um, district can can talk about what would it like to what would it be like to do this right if we're creating alternative schools for for populations of students for which traditional comprehensive high schools are, are not very realistic otherwise these wouldn't exist why how is this not one of the first and foremost you know substance use disorder being a mental health disorder how is this not being addressed as a as a viable option why isn't that not at the the forefront of the conversation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So even just asking the question, why aren't we doing this? And I love that you started in a gym with two teachers and two students, because I think a lot of times it can just feel like overwhelming. Oh my gosh, how would we ever start a school? And when you think of a school, you think of, you know, a campus and 400 kids, but you're saying we started with two students and two staff in a gym. And I think that's awesome because that means anybody can do it. Exactly. We've all got different options. You know, different resources are available with it within each district. And a lot of times they're just not being utilized or not being, um, you know, not being offered as available. And there's there's funding sources, right, that can be secured that yeah. it, it just depending on on each district, you know, that we're not even we're not even necessarily considering because and this is the final thing I'll say, you know, is that it's not just that you know, a recovery school, you can look at it from, from one lens and say, well, you know, until we get enrollment of a couple hundred students or whatever, then maybe how do we justify it, right? Between the, the staff to, to student ratio. Well, my question is, you, you can clearly see the importance of having a, a sober option for young people. But what if we don't offer that? What if there's nothing? What if there's absolutely, is, is that not an injustice to kids and families to offer some viable solution because I think when you when you really start right. to pull back the layers you, you get pretty scared to recognize how little feasible options are actually being offered so so true well I can't thank you enough for your time and all of this input and your your experience and just raising awareness about recovery school high school is so critical um, and again I'll put all of these resources in the show notes so you can go people can go there and, and grab those and um, I will let you get on with your day and I hope you have really really happy holidays with your family awesome thanks so much for the opportunity and for anyone that's listening and, and please feel free to do some more research anyone about recovery high schools alternative peer groups and and even if and if you would like to reach out to me directly thank you so much for listening if you would like to go to the show notes you can always find those at brendazane.com forward slash podcast each episode is listed there with full transcript all of the resources that we mention as well as a place to leave comments if you would like to do that you might also want to download a free ebook I wrote called Hindsight, Three Things I Wish I Knew When My Son Was Addicted to Drugs. It's full of the information I wish I would have known when my son was struggling with his addiction. You can grab that at brendazane.com forward slash hindsight. Thanks again for listening, and I will meet you right back here next week.